to the Gospel of John, and we're in John 11 tonight. John chapter 11. Let's pray together. Father, as we come before you tonight, we're so thankful that we're your sons, that we're your daughters, and God, we pray that we would be rooted and grounded in your love. More than anything else, that we would understand the height and the depth and the width of your love. We do pray also that you would strengthen our inner man tonight, as Jason was describing and sharing. Lord, where we're broken and we're weak, that you would come and that you would strengthen us. We pray that you would really move in our hearts through your word, through the distractions, through the busyness of the day, that we would understand your power and how great your power is towards us to give us life and to transform us. In Jesus' name, amen. No one's ever prepared for the death of a loved one. I mean, how do you prepare for that? But death is bipartisan. It's not a respecter of persons. Many times doesn't give notice. And the coffin and the grave is absolutely cold and brutal. But we're not here tonight to focus on the brutality of death, but the hope of the resurrection. Jesus shows us that he's conquered the grave in John chapter 11. Yes, it's the story of Lazarus. And if you've been studying with us through the Gospel of John, you know that John's different from the other Gospels. He doesn't record a lot of miracles. In fact, he only records seven, and he calls them signs. Because each miracle tells us something about Jesus. It teaches us a greater lesson about Jesus Christ. And so we're going to look at one of those signs tonight of Lazarus being raised from the dead. Also, there's seven I am statements in the Gospel of John. The first was when Jesus said, I'm the bread of life. That we can come and feast on him and he satisfies our soul. Then I am the light of the world. That Jesus is the one who lights up our lives and lights up this world. Then last week, we studied two in John 10. Remember him? I am the door. Jesus said, I'm the door. He's the way to salvation. He's the one that opens and closes doors in life. And Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. He's the one who leads us. We're in Christ's hand. And then tonight, we're going to look at Jesus saying, I am the resurrection and the life. And so this is the fifth I am statement of John. Why was John so selective? Because he wrote for a purpose. You know, if you're writing an article and you've got a thesis, you've got a point that you're making, John wrote for the specific purpose, John 20 tells us, that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ that he's the one that was promised in the Old Testament, God in human flesh, the one before creation, the one that spoke all things into existence, has now come in human flesh, and John says, here's Jesus, don't miss him. Here's what he's done for us, and who, this is who he is. But also that we would not just know that he's the Messiah, but that we would believe and have life through his name. So hopefully as we're going through John, we're experiencing more life in Jesus Christ. We're experiencing him as the bread of life, the light of the world, the living water, and coming to him and enjoying him in that place. So let's look at verse 1 of chapter 11. Now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary, and her sister Martha. It was that Mary who anointed the Lord with the fragrant oil 
and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. So Lazarus is sick. It's serious. It's life-threatening. We know that Mary is well-known because notice how verse 1 describes her, the town of Mary. Oh, you're going to Bethany? Oh, that's the town of Mary. That's where Mary lives. And Bethany was this small town just two miles outside of Jerusalem on the eastern slope of the Mount of Olives. Also, we know Mary for her worship, that she anointed the feet of Jesus with fragrant oil. Probably Mary and Martha are most famous for the tension that they had with each other. Martha was busy making the meal. Mary was enthralled with sitting at the feet of Jesus. She does the ultimate rat out, remember? She comes to Jesus and says, why don't you tell my sister to get to work? And was surprised when Jesus said that Mary had chosen the one thing that was needed. This family, Lazarus, Mary, and Martha were close to Jesus. They were close friends. So what do they do when Lazarus gets sick? In verse 3, therefore the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. This is interesting because they simply give information to Jesus, but they don't make any request or demand, do they? They just say, Lazarus is sick and you love him. We'll leave it at that. They don't say, Lazarus is sick, please come and heal him. Lazarus is sick, we think he's going to die. You've got to come in this moment. You've got to come in this time. It was simply, Lazarus is sick. They could do this with confidence because they knew that Jesus would respond. We can come to God as our Father who loves us and present the need to him and know that he's going to respond. In verse 4, when Jesus heard that, he said, This sickness is not unto death but for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. He says, no, this is not going to be unto death. This is going to be confusing for the disciples, because we know that Lazarus is going to die. We know the full story. Then Christ is going to rise him from the dead. But for this moment, Jesus simply says, it's not unto death, but it's for the glory of God. And this is an important understanding in our lives. We sang tonight in worship that God reigns. He also reigns over our suffering, and he reigns over our, our trials. He's sovereign in our trials, and he allows these trials in our lives of all different shapes and sizes for his glory to be seen. This whole community, Bethany, is going to be rocked by the time this event is done. Jerusalem, there's a megaphone going out of the glory of God through Jerusalem, but how did it begin? It began with suffering. And many times, God gets the attention of a deaf world through suffering. What's different about us as believers? Hopefully, it's the hope that we have in the midst of suffering. It's Jesus being able to be seen in the midst of the storm that we're going through. So we can have confidence. You can have confidence tonight. If you're going through a trial in your life, God's going to use it for good. God's going to use it for his glory. Even if it involves the sinful choices of others. Joseph was the object of other people's sin, but yet God turned it around, didn't he? He used it for good. God uses suffering for his glory. In verse 5, Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. John wants us to know that Jesus does really love this family. And the reason is because his actions don't seem loving at first in verse 6 and 7. So when he heard that he was sick, he stayed two more days in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to his disciples, let us go to Judah again. 
some distance away, finally gets the news that Lazarus is sick. This is serious. Other times in the Gospels, when people came to Jesus saying, hey, someone's on their deathbed, Jesus often went with them, didn't he? Right away, right in that moment. But this time, Jesus gets a cappuccino. He sits back and he says, I'm not going anywhere anytime soon and waits an hour and then five hours and then 24 hours and then 48 hours he waits. And during this time of waiting, by then the time that he travels to Bethany, Lazarus has died. He's in the tomb for four whole days. Do we trust God's timing when it seems like he's not showing up? You put yourself in Mary and Martha's shoes and you're watching your brother die. You're putting him in that cold grave. You're broken, you're weeping, you're wondering where's Christ? We know that he got the word, but he hasn't come and he hasn't responded. And maybe that's the way you feel in some area of your life and some trial that you're going through. God, do you not hear my prayer in regards to my children? Do you, do you not hear my prayer in regards to my marriage? Do you not hear my prayer in regard to my finances? Lord, where are you? This delay, the, this silence, we're not God, are we? And our ways are not God's ways. And our timing is not God's timing. And God's not making a mistake here. He's working something out for his glory. And that's the trust that we have to have when it seems like God is absent. When it seems like he hasn't shown up, that he's still working and that he's good and we can trust his plan and it's unfolding. It's easier said than done, isn't it? When you're in the midst of those long 48 hours of waiting. Verse 8, then the disciples said to him, Rabbi, lately the Jews sought to stone you and you're going there again. Jerusalem was the real hot spot. And now that they're headed back to the area of Jerusalem, the disciples are like, not trying to be rude, but you're not very popular in Jerusalem. Like, they kind of tried to stone you and, and kill you. Do you not remember that? Why are we going back? Verse 9, Jesus answered, Are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he doesn't stumble, because he sees the light of this world. But if one walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. Of course, there's a practical truth to this, that you're going to be a lot safer doing stuff during the day. Hey, downtown's a lot safer at two in the afternoon than it is in two in the morning. You don't have to be a rocket science to figure that out. Trouble seems to happen at night and those dark hours. And so there's that element here. But there's the spiritual element where Jesus is saying, I'm the light of the world. And as long as I'm in the, in the world, it's safe for us to go to Bethany. It's not my time yet to be crucified. So there's the practical and there's the spiritual. Verse 11. These things he said, and after this he said to them, Our friend Lazarus sleeps, but I go that I may wake him up. Now if that's the first time that you've ever read John 11, 11, what would you think? If you're the disciples, what would be your impression of that? Verse 12. Then his disciples said, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get well. So they're saying, why are we taking all this time to go to Bethany? If he's simply sleeping, I'm sure he's going to wake up. However, Jesus spoke of his death, but they thought that he was speaking about taking rest in sleep. This isn't the first time that Jesus refers to death as sleep. In 1 Thessalonians 4, it also talks about those who are dead in Christ are asleep. It's because when we die as believers, 
It's not the same as somebody who doesn't know Christ as their Savior. So because this word sleep has been used, there's been a doctrine that's been developed called soul sleep, that when a believer dies, that you don't go directly to be home with the Lord, and you go into this state of soul sleep in the grave. Then at the return of Christ, the graves will be opened and we'll receive our glorified body. And so everybody who is in Christ is kind of waiting for that second return of Jesus Christ. But that's not the case because scripture tells us to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Isn't that good news? You know, I realized something today. In heaven, there's gonna be no laundry. <laughs> I mean, laundry just feels eternal, doesn't it? And we've got four kids and four kids and four kids and two adults. And it just seems like you never get on top of it. The moment that you get all the laundry done, you go to the laundry baskets and you're like, oh my goodness, I thought I was done and I'm, I'm just getting started here. And it's going to be so nice. And I know that doesn't even compare to all the other things that are going to be so wonderful in heaven but just remind me when we get up there, hey, Eric, you're not doing any laundry, you know? <laughs> to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. But it is clear from Scripture that we won't get our glorified body until that moment of the second coming of Jesus Christ. So are we up there without our bodies? Possibly, but I think time is very different in heaven. It's an eternal now. Jesus gave us just a small illustration of this in Peter's writings where he says that for us a thousand years is like a day unto the Lord. And that's not a literal statement. It's showing us that time's a completely different deal in heaven. I don't think we'll be sitting around waiting for our glorified bodies. So there isn't soul sleep in that sense, but Jesus uses the reference of sleep to show us that ultimately we're going to be alive in Christ, that death isn't permanent for us. The disciples are extremely confused. Jesus clears it up in verse 14. Then Jesus said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. I'm so thankful for the honesty that we have of the disciples and their relationship with Christ. They don't sugarcoat it. They don't make it look like they always have the understanding that they just, it was smooth sailing everywhere they went. A lot of times the disciples were clearly lost and Jesus had patience with them to just speak to him directly and goes, okay, guys, I'm giving you a little illustration about death here, but Lazarus, he's dead. He's just dead as a doornail. And how many times does Christ go, Eric, you're just not getting it here. You're not understanding this. So let me put this in plain English, all right? Here's the, here's the issue and here's what's happening. Verse 15, this is an interesting verse. And I am glad for your sakes that I was not there, that you may believe. Nevertheless, let us go to him. Jesus was actually glad that Lazarus died because through Lazarus' death was going to be an opportunity for his glory to be seen. And he says, I'm glad that I wasn't there so that you guys would have the opportunity to believe. God loves us enough that he'll actually ordain and allow and set into motion certain situations and even trials and difficulties for the sole purpose that we could see his glory, for the sole purpose that we could understand how big he is and how much power he has. And so other people can see that around us as well. In verse 16, then Thomas, who is called the twin, said to the fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. And he's been called the Eeyore of the New Testament, right? 
from Winnie the Pooh. All right, I guess we've got to go and die with him, you know. But we've got to give him some credit, don't we? He's willing to go and die with the Lord. He was fully convinced that Jerusalem is very dangerous. They've already tried to kill Jesus prior. They're going to try to do it again. It means our life, but he's willing to follow Jesus Christ to the death. One of the things that I admire about Thomas in the Gospels is it's real and honest. When he didn't believe, he said, I don't believe. You guys all may believe, but I have to see the hands of Jesus Christ. I've got to behold his wounds and touch those wounds. There was no faking with Thomas. He's like, well, this is bad news, and I think I'm going to die with Christ today. Verse 17. So when Jesus came, he found that he'd already been in the tomb for four days. This isn't a surprise to the Lord. This isn't something that is news to Christ. Verse 18, now Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles away. And many of the Jews had joined the women around Martha and Mary to comfort them concerning their brother. They're a well-known family in Bethany and Jerusalem. So Jews had come from Jerusalem to Bethany to help be a comfort to Mary and Martha. Now Martha, as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, went and met him, but Martha was sitting in the house. This is an important verse. It's one for us to talk about for a little bit. Is Martha hears that Jesus has come, and she doesn't wait. She gets up, and right away, she goes to Jesus. And she's going to have a tough conversation with Christ. She's disillusioned. She's disappointed. She's frustrated. She's upset. She's heartbroken, but what does she do? She goes to Christ, and she has a respectful, honest, transparent conversation with God. And this is important for us because we're going to experience death. We're going to experience the loss of loved ones. We're going to experience the the loss of jobs. There's going to be trial and brokenness that goes in our lives, and I don't know where we've come up with it, but there's something in us that says, I can't really go to God with how I really feel. I can't really go to God and say, God, I'm disappointed that things turned out this way. I had a lot of hope in this situation and dreams and desires and, and wishes, and it didn't turn out this way. And Lord, where were you? And somehow we think that that is disrespectful to the Lord. Now, there is a way to do that disrespectfully, and we don't want to go there. But there is a way inside of a real relationship to bear our hearts to God, and he already knows it as well. And there's a lot of examples of this in Scripture if you read it honestly. When you look at the Psalms, I mean, the Psalms are pretty much puking on God. And God records it, and it's like, hey, learn from this. You look at some of the things the psalmists really say, you're like, wow, I think he's pretty upset right here. This guy's depressed. Seriously, clinically depressed right here. In the Psalms, and he's telling God all about it. But you'll notice in the Psalms, as they're honest with God, that something starts to happen, and they're having this conversation with God, and they're reminded about who God is, and many times they end praising the Lord. They start off in the depths of this trial and this difficulty and the mud and the mire, and they pour that out to God, and God meets them in a fresh way. Jeremiah would have conversations with God where he's saying, I don't even know why I was born. You know, this is terrible that I, God, I don't even understand why you ever had me come into the planet. And this is the prophet Jeremiah that was so faithful. 
There was times when he went to God and he says, God, I'm done being a prophet. That's it. I put in my resignation. I'm never speaking your word again. Neener, 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 you know? Just totally upset at God. And then he sat in that for a little while and he's like, God's word burns within my bones. I can't keep it within me. But God records all of that for us in scripture. Job even kind of gets some, whatever you want to call it, from God. You know, some real strong language from God at the end of Job. Where he says to Job, hey, where were you when I did this? Where were you when I did this? And where were you when I did this? But that understanding of who God is came out of a real conversation that Job had with God about his disappointments. Are you following me? For a long time, when someone would say, I'm disappointed with God, I wouldn't really understand. In my heart, I would go, how could you be disappointed with God because God gave you his son? And I wouldn't say that to them, but that would be the question that I was wrestling in my own heart. Like, we deserve this, and God gave us this, so how could we be disappointed with God? And then five years or so ago, my wife and I, we went through our first miscarriage. I, for the first time, experienced that in my life, where I was disappointed. We were about 12 weeks along in the pregnancy and already excited and told everybody and you bonded with this child and then all of a sudden, pregnancy's over and this child's home to be with the Lord. And I was feeling a lot of what Mary and Martha were feeling. And yet, I didn't think that I could just go to God and say, God, I'm really disappointed. This didn't work out the way that I was hoping. And I stayed in that place for about a week and then I just couldn't take the pain anymore. I got down on my knees late at night in my bedroom and just cried out to God and said, God, this is the way I feel. And that's when the Lord met me. That's when the Lord comforted me. And don't run away from the Lord in those moments. There's something inside of us where we just want to push God away. We go, God, you weren't here. You allowed this. You, you ordained this. So I'm not running to you for comfort. But this is the time that we need to press in and we need to run to him. And Martha shows us great maturity and a great lesson and that she runs to Jesus right away and she has that difficult conversation. Do you need to have that with God? What are your questions? What are your hurts? What are your disappointments? He's your father. Maybe tonight's the night where after service you say, you know what? I'm not going to do whatever I was planning to do. I'm going to have this real and honest conversation with the Lord. Don't get the wrong idea about Martha. Sometimes people look at her because she was serving instead of sitting at the feet of Jesus, that she didn't love Jesus. She was serving that meal because she loved Jesus. You following me? And this shows us her love for Jesus and how she was running to him. In verse 21, Now Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Very honest, very respectful, saying if you would have been here, this would have been a different outcome. Maybe even a mild rebuke. Why weren't you here? In verse 22, but even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. So she knows that ultimately at the end of time, he'll be resurrected. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. Here's the fifth I am statement in the Gospel of John. I am the resurrection and the life. This is a radical statement. If Jesus didn't 
rise from the dead, we would have just put him in the lunatic category. He's claiming to have victory over death. He's claiming that he's the resurrection. He's claiming that he's the life. But since he rose Lazarus from the dead, and since he himself rose from the grave, he indeed is the resurrection. He indeed is life. And again, this I am statement is a statement of deity. It goes back to Exodus and the burning bush passage with Moses. God, God, the great I am, he's the resurrection and he's the life. And if we believe in Christ, though we may die, we shall live. That's the promise of the gospel. Verse 26, and whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Death is different for believers. There is a physical death that happens, but it's just simply the transition from this life into eternal life. Our last breath here on earth is our first breath in heaven. Death's not something that we have to fear. We all get a little uptight at the process and what way the Lord's going to allow us to die, but we don't have to fear that because if we believe in Christ, we'll never die. We are going to inherit eternal life. In verse 27, she said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. A great expression of faith, but I don't think she expects Lazarus to be raised from the dead that afternoon. Verse 28, and when she had said these things, she went her way secretly and called Mary her sister, saying, the teacher has come and he's calling for you. Jesus pursues us in our grief. He knows how Mary's feeling. He says, okay, Martha, we've had this time to talk. Now it's time for you to go get Mary. So, Know that about your Savior. He knows the grief and the heartache that you're in, and he actually pursues us in that state. And as soon as she heard that, she arose quickly and came to him. Like Martha, Mary responds the same way. As soon as she knows Jesus is there, she runs to him. Now, Jesus had not yet come into the town, but was in the place where Martha met him. Then the Jews who were with her in the house and comforting her when they saw that Mary rose up quickly and went out, followed her, saying, She is going to the tomb to weep. So they assumed that Mary was headed to the tomb. Then when Mary came where Jesus was and saw him, she fell down at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would have not died. Same thing. She feels the same way. Where were you? And has that honest conversation with the Lord. And this is very emotional. We have a hard time gauging the emotion, but she's falling at the feet of Jesus, and she's weeping. She's bearing her heart to Christ. This is recorded twice for us because it shows us the value of bringing our heart to God. God's emphasizing in his word that this is something that we should do, just like Mary and just like Martha. In verse 33, Therefore, when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who came with her weeping, he groaned in his spirit, and was troubled, and he says, where have you laid him? And these are strong words in the Greek, groaned and troubled. Christ is affected. It's that moan. It's that, that deep moan that comes from that place of grief, and that place of brokenness, and that place of sorrow. Also, in looking up this word groaned in the Greek, it, it's like a horse who's snorting, and that seems a little bit weird, but the idea is some frustration and, and some anger. Sometimes in funerals, you see people groan out of absolute grief, and sometimes you see them groan out of anger and frustration of the pain of losing someone. And it seems that Christ is both heartbroken, but
but he's also angered over what death has done to those that he loves. So we go on in verse 35. They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. And this word wept in the Greek, it means to wail loudly. Jesus wept. Now this was my first memory verse that I ever did memorize. <laughs> Growing up in the church, you know, you had to always memorize some verses. And so this was it. It's the shortest verse in the Bible. It's two words. Jesus wept. But the Sunday school teacher would usually stump me and say, well, if you're going to get credit for it, where is it in the Bible? I'm like, oh, and then I groaned. Oh, you know, I didn't know where it was in, in Scripture. What was this like for Mary and Martha? Where they had been wondering, does God really love us? Where was he? Why didn't he show up? Why did he wait those two extra days before he came? Now they're at their grave. They're at the tomb. And graves are a somber place. They're a place of tears and they're a place of, of brokenness. And they look over at Christ and they're seeing tears come down his face, down his beard. Big alligator tears. And then he just starts to wail. He starts to sob. How moving that that would be. You probably have at least one person in your life, when you see them cry, you're undone. For me growing up, it was my dad. My dad didn't cry. And so when I did see him cry, finally when I was 16 years old, I was moved by that because that was not an expression that I normally saw from, from my father. It may be your father, maybe your husband, and maybe your wife, but someone who maybe doesn't normally show emotion or someone that you love or you respect, and when they start to cry, when you see your kids really wail out of a broken heart, it does something to you, doesn't it? And this did something to them. This is a big moment here. This says something about God. This is God in human flesh that reveals the Father to us. God's not emotionless. God's not just stoic up in, up in heaven going, oh, you're having a tough day? Suck it up, you know? Get over it. Deal with it, you know? What does Jesus know that's going to happen? He knows that he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead. He knows that Lazarus is already in paradise, in Abraham's bosom, this place for believers before Christ died and rose again. And Jesus doesn't go through this doxology of theology of where Lazarus is at and say, uh-uh, no crying. Don't be crying. He weeps with them. And in Romans, it tells us to weep with those who weep and to rejoice with those who rejoice. So when you go to the grave to bury a loved one, keep this in mind. Put this in your heart that Jesus knows how you feel. Any suffering that you go through in life, he feels the pain that we go through. He weeps with them. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. They, they got it and they understood the love of Christ. And some of them said, could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind also have kept this man from dying? Doesn't tragedy cause us to wrestle with these kind of questions? Couldn't have God done something about this? Couldn't have God prevented me from losing my home 
losing my job? Couldn't have God prevented the car accident? You start to play things through in your mind. You know, this summer, our three-year-old, she was running around in the family room and she tripped and she hit her head on the fireplace. She had to get three staples in her head and that was the first staples stitches experience in our house and, you know, head wounds bleed a lot and so here you've got your little daughter with all this blood on on her, her face. And after that whole event was done, I was replaying the scenarios in my mind And I'd gotten a phone call from my mom and walked into the family room and started talking to my mom. And Eileen came in after me and just was kind of running in there. I was thinking, if I didn't pick up the phone, she wouldn't have been in there. And you wrestle with all that kind of stuff. The bigger the tragedy is, that was just a few staples, but the bigger the tragedy is, you start to go through all of these things. So this is a very natural thing for them to wonder. The crowd's going, hey, Jesus healed the blind man. Couldn't he have healed Lazarus as well? Then Jesus, again groaning in himself, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. And this is like the hush came over the crowd. This is like going to the cemetery and saying, go ahead, dig it up. Come on. You know, Jesus is saying, let's let's open this up. Take away the stone. And Martha, the sister of him who was dead, said to him, Lord, by this time there's a stench, for he's been dead four days. Sometimes the old King James Version just has the best translation. It says, Lord, he stinketh, you know? (laughs) This is part of the miracle that Jesus is going to do, is the decay process is already well underway by the fourth day. Jesus times it perfectly. Not only is he going to show that he has power over the grave to bring him back to life, but he also has the power to recreate and reconstruct what has already been decaying in Lazarus's body. Jesus said to her in verse 40, didn't I say to you that if you would believe, you would see the glory of God? This is the condition to seeing the glory of God is believing and trusting and expecting that the Lord desires to work according to his will. Verse 41, Then they took away the stone from the place where the dead man was lying, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you've heard me, and I know that you will always hear me. But because of the people who are standing by, I said this, that they may believe that you sent me. So Jesus didn't need to pray out loud. He's got communion with the Father. He knows that the Father hears him, but he does pray out loud so that everybody around could see his communion with the Father, and they could understand that this miracle was a response to the Son praying to the Father, and they would be convinced that Jesus was sent by the Father. Verse 43, when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. In verse 44, And when he who had died came out, bound hands and foot with grave cloth, and his face was wrapped with a cloth, Jesus said to them, Loose him and let him go. <laughs> I've often wondered, what was Lazarus' perspective? He's hanging out in Abraham's bosom with Abraham and Moses and everybody else that's there, and, and all of a sudden, whoosh, He's raised back to life, and he's like, this is kind of a weird outfit, you know? 
All he's got is his little eye holes, and everybody's so freaked out. No one's going to go touch him, or nobody's going to go unwrap him. So Jesus is like, come on, loose his grave claws. He's alive. It's okay. You can touch him. He doesn't stinketh anymore, you know, and <laughs> it's okay. And Lazarus gets unwrapped, and he's reunited with Mary, and he's reunited with Martha. This miracle is foreshadowing of the resurrection of Jesus Christ that's going to take place shortly after his death. The resurrection of Lazarus also foreshadows the resurrection of every believer. We're going to be resurrected not back to our temporal bodies. That would be torture, wouldn't it? Oh, I did this and died at 86, and now I got to do it again. You know, that would be torture. We're going to be raised to eternal life, to a glorified body that knows no pain, that knows no disease, that knows no suffering, that knows no sin or even the temptation or the possibility to sin. Christ really has conquered death. We can go to every grave that we face as believers with hope, with absolute confidence that they're with the Lord. Doesn't mean it doesn't hurt doesn't mean it's not painful. The Bible never says not to grieve, but we're to grieve differently than those that don't have Christ because we have hope. But also Christ, being the resurrection and the life, it shows that he has power to bring life into our lives where there's death. And do we believe this? There's parts of us as believers that are not functioning, that are dead, that are seized up, And the work of the gospel and the death and the resurrection of Christ is the penalty of sin's been paid for, but also the power of sin has been broken. This is Romans 4, verse 17. It says, God, who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did. Study in Ephesians 3, the end, Paul prays, and he's talking about the power of God, and he says the power of God toward us. He prays that the church of Ephesus would know the power of God in their lives, and that's a great prayer for us to pray for one another. Since Christ is risen, he has the power to transform our lives, amen? amen. And that resurrection power, the spirit that raised Christ from the dead, it lives inside of us, and that's encouraging. Jesus is the resurrection and the life, and he has everything that's needed to bring forth transformation in our lives. In verse 45, Then many of the Jews who had come to Mary and had seen the things Jesus did believed in him. There's two responses to the resurrection of Lazarus. One, saving faith. They believed in Jesus. But the other, verse 46, But some of them went away to the Pharisees and told them the things Jesus did. The other response is go tattle to the principal. And the principal was the Pharisees. In verse 47, Then the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered a council and said, What shall we do? For this man works many signs. If we let him alone like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both of our place and the nation. They've got a real problem with Jesus. Everybody's following Jesus. The reason that they killed Christ, that they murdered Christ, was out of jealousy and envy. Now, we never think that jealousy and envy is not dangerous. It led to the crucifixion of Christ. In verse 49, 
And one of them, Caiaphas, being the high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you consider that it's expedient for us that one man should die for the people and that the whole nation should perish. Now this he did not say on his own authority, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for that nation only, but also that he would gather together in one the children of God who were scattered abroad. Caiaphas didn't even understand the magnitude of what he was saying that it was expedient that one person would die for all the people, that God in human flesh, it was expedient in God's plan that Jesus would die so that salvation would come to all kind. And it shows God's power is working through him, even though he didn't even realize it and wasn't even aware of it. In verse 53, then from that day on, they plotted to put him to death. Therefore, Jesus no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there into a the country near the wilderness to a city called Ephraim, and there remained with his disciples. I wonder what these days were like for Christ. The cross is very near. He knows his next time to Jerusalem will be his last week, the week of Passover leading up to his crucifixion. I wonder what he was meditating on and thinking about in this wilderness time. In verse 55, And the Passover of the Jews was near, And many went from the country up to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. Then they sought Jesus and spoke among themselves as they stood in the temple. What do you think that he will will not come? What do you think that he will not come to the feast? Now both the chief priests and the Pharisees had given a command that if anyone knew where he was, he should report it, that they may seize him. At this Passover, the Lamb of God is going to be slain for the sins of the world. No longer will there be the need for the Passover lamb. These are the things that this chapter teaches me. This is how the Lord spoke to my heart in this chapter. The first is, God has a plan that I can trust. God has a plan that I can trust. Even in those moments of delay, of wait, of God's timing's not my timing, where are you? Those 48 hours, God has a plan that I can trust. Do we learn that from Lazarus? God was working and God was doing something. The other is this, the importance of bringing my pain to God. Maybe you've been holding on to a hurt for some time, long time, years, months. For some reason, you haven't brought it to the Lord. Mary and Martha show us the importance of bringing our pain to God. Even in communion tonight, to have that honest and real conversation with God. We talk so much about a relationship with Jesus. What does that really look like? Maybe let's try being real and honest. Saying, God, this is where I'm at. I don't really necessarily like where I'm at, but this is what I'm feeling, and this is what I'm going through. This stands out in bold letters. Jesus feels my pain. We have the Savior who weeps at the grave of Lazarus. He knows the pain, and he feels the pain, and he weeps with those who weep. And then the last is the greatest. The grave is defeated, and life is provided. Isn't that good news? The grave is defeated, and life is provided. When I pass away, don't get around and be all sad and be like, Eric's dead. No, I'm alive, more alive than I've ever been before, you know? I'll be snowboarding with Jesus and doing 360s and all kinds of stuff. It's going to be great. 
It's going to be fabulous. The death is defeated and life is provided. Christ is risen and he's the resurrection and the life. Amen? Amen. Let's stand and pray.